Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update. In partnership with justiceinfo.net. All rise. Hi, Janet. Hi, Steph. So it's a super busy week here at the ICC. Yeah, we're actually recording here at the Press Centre at the ICC, and it's just after Lauren Bagbo, the former president of the Ivory Coast, and his strong supporter, Charles Blais-Goudet, were both fully acquitted just a couple of hours ago. So apologies to the few journalists still here slaving away behind us, uh, but we'll get back to that later in the podcast, the whole Bagbo ruling. So first, let's take a quick look at the day earlier when Bosco Ntaganda from the Democratic Republic of Congo had his 30-year sentence. That was for war crimes, crimes against humanity, I think, confirmed by the appeals chamber. You were here, Steph. That was also a kind of rubber stamping. Ntaganda was sentenced to 30 years in prison in, in 2019 for murder, rape and other atrocities committed, uh, also conscripting and using child soldiers. He, when he was the military chief of the Union of Congolese Patriots, the UPC militia in um, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Hundreds of civilians were killed in the conflict and many thousands were forced to flee the fighting. One of the interesting aspects is that he's the first defendant to be convicted with finality by the ICC of sexual and gender-based crimes. And that includes sexual crimes against both men and women, civilians, and also child soldiers. So I called up Rosemary Gray of Sydney Law School and I asked her exactly how important she thinks this latest ICC decision is. But just a quick warning before we play that. Uh, She describes some very graphic acts of sexual violence and it's a tough listen. I think that the Appeal Chamber's decision to uphold Bosco Nadaganda's conviction is a milestone and it's a turning point in the International Criminal Court's experience with sexual crimes. And I'll explain why. As your listeners are probably aware, the International Criminal Court has had quite a difficult history with holding offenders to account for sexual and gender-based crimes. In fact, Nataganda's appeal decision is the first time that we have seen a sexual violence conviction from the ICC be upheld with finality. So let me just remind myself, there were a couple previously, weren't yeah. there? They, they slipped into December and that got acquitted and they tried somewhere else. I mean, so it- to walk you through the history of sexual violence crimes at the ICC, what happened is the first key instance was the Lubanga case from the Democratic Congo. And that was a very high profile case for many reasons, including it was the ICC's first trial. And in that case, the then prosecutor, Louis Marino Ocampo, did not lead evidence of sexual violence at the pre-trial stage. And as a result, all of the evidence of sexual violence that came out at trial was deemed to be outside the scope of the charges, with the result that the trial chamber did not convict Thomas Lubanga for any of the sexual and gender-based crimes that were discussed at trial. Instead, it held him accountable only for conscripting and enlisting and using child soldiers. And then the next shot was the Ungajolo case, which was also from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And um, Matthew Ungajolo Chui was acquitted of all charges. And then his co-accused, Jermaine Katanga, was convicted of a number of charges, but he was acquitted of rape and sexual slavery. So by that stage, the ICC's track record in convicting people of sexual violence was still zero. The Bemba case from the Central African Republic drew a lot of attention because it was the ICC's first conviction for rape, as well as murder and pillage in that case. Um, However, although Jean-Pierre Bemba Gombo 
was convicted of the rape of men, women and children in the Central African Republic using command responsibility, that whole conviction was overturned on appeal. And so back to zero in terms of convictions for sexual violence. So that's why that makes this particular case the first time we've gone right the way through the whole system. Until it's upheld on appeal, it's not going to be a final decision if there are appeal proceedings pending. So the only other case has been the Ongwen case, which was in February this year, which is from the situation in Uganda. Dominic Ongwen was convicted of a huge range of war crimes and crimes against humanity, including sexual crimes such as rape, forced pregnancy, sexual slavery and forced marriage. So it could be that that is also upheld, but it is expected that there'll be appeal proceedings in Ongwen. And so just going back to the Bemba experience, I think it is wise to wait until all the appeals are finalised before we can say whether or not that um, Ongwen's conviction for sexual violence will be final. Whereas the Bosco Adaganda case, this decision is final. There's no one doing it now. It has been upheld on appeal, as has his sentence. And so we can say with confidence that in the Bosco Nataganda case, he was convicted of sexual crimes and that that will lead to reparations for sexual crimes in this case. And in this case, is it also very wide, the kinds of things that he's been convicted of? Because uh, I put in my intro something about men as well as women and child soldiers as well. So what's the different range of, of things? That's right. Nataganda was convicted of a very wide range of sexual and gender-based crimes, including against female civilians and male civilians and children. So to give you a sense of that, in terms of female civilians, he was convicted of all kinds of rapes and sexual slavery that his um, troops carried out, and that is things like raping and detaining civilian women and girls, including forced vaginal and face anal penetration. In terms of sexual violence against men, the conviction includes one instance in which UPC soldiers forced a male detainee to insert his hand into the vagina of a female detainee, which is rape against that female detainee. But it's also sexual violence against the man who was forced to engage in that sexual act. And then on other occasions, uh, the trial chamber found that UPC soldiers sexually penetrated, I mean anally penetrated men, using both um, sexual organs and pieces of wood as well. So there's different types of sexual acts that men were forced to engage in. And then in terms of children, it was very controversial in this case that the charges of rape and sexual slavery as war crimes included charges for the sexual violence committed by UPC commanders against child soldiers within their ranks. And for an outsider, you might think, of course, that's a war crime in the sense that it happened in the context of war. It's sexual violence against children. That makes it particularly egregious because of the victim's age as well as the nature of the crime. However, legally speaking, there was litigation and um, a huge amount of debate in the scholarship as well, both at the pre-trial stage and the trial stage and the appeal stage in Metaganda, because there was this question the defence argued that it's not a war crime if the victims and perpetrators are from the same armed group as each other, in this case, all part of the UPC. According to the defence, war crimes law is about crimes committed by one group against the other force in the conflict or against civilians associated with the other side of the conflict. It 
it's not a war crime if it all happens within one group. And the prosecutor was able to put forward ultimately a successful legal argument that indeed it is a war crime. It may not be a war crime that has been enforced in the past with regularity. However, if you go back to the first principles of IHL and examine all of the different relevant instruments, it is indeed a war crime for a commander to sexually abuse or to sexually assault um, someone within their ranks, including child soldiers. And that argument was upheld at the pretrial stage, at the trial stage and the appeals stage. So that was a really legally groundbreaking moment. I remember when the prosecutor brought out her uh, policy paper on bringing sexual and gender-based crimes you know, more to the fore, and she really made this a, a feature of her prosecutorship, and she's coming to the end of that at the moment. How would you assess uh, how that's gone? I think Prosecutor Ben Suda has done a remarkable job in developing a policy that is about thoroughly and sensitively investigating and prosecuting sexual violence crimes. But importantly, it hasn't just been policy commitments, it's been followed through with practice. And the Nataganda case is a really good example of this because I think of the Lubanga case, which was initiated um, at the very beginning of the court's practice, and the Nataganda case as shadow cases, as a comparison with each other. And that's because they both started off exactly the same way, but then they developed in different directions under different prosecutors because of all the learning that the court had done in the intervening years. So I just think it's really interesting for us to remember that both of these cases, Lubanga and Nataganda, began precisely on the same day. They both began on 13th of January 2006, which was when Prosecutor Moreno Ocampo sought arrest warrants for two different UPC commanders, Thomas Lubanga and Bosco Nataganda. And both cases concern crimes committed by the UPC. And in both cases, the charges were limited to conscripting and enlisting and using child soldiers. But while the Lubanga charges were never modified, and I talked about the disappointments in terms of sexual violence, the Nataganda case was expanded, primarily under Prosecutor Ben Suda's leadership, to include sexual and gender-based crimes, and then the whole trial run under Prosecutor Ben Suda's term, with the senior trial lawyer being the only senior trial lawyer in the OTP to have run a case, and that's Nicole Sampson. And in their result, the trial chamber did convict Bosco Nataganda of sexual and gender crimes, and that was upheld on appeal. And that's one of many cases in which the OTP as a whole has developed its competencies and its skills in prosecuting sexual crimes and has taken quite bold legal steps in terms of pushing the envelope to recognise things like war crimes of rape against soldiers within one's own group and then also pushing the envelope in other cases to recognise things like forced pregnancy that had never been prosecuted before and gender persecution, which has never been prosecuted before and is being prosecuted in the Mali case. So what I'm trying to say is that in Prosecutor Ben Suda's term, we've seen this policy be articulated But there's also been a shift in practice where sexual crimes are being charged early, that there is sufficient evidence to establish both that the crimes happened but that the accused person was responsible for them, and also that there's been creativity and skill in terms of developing new legal arguments without the weight of precedent behind you in order to break new legal ground and recognise sexual crimes in the ICC's case law. 
And the other interesting thing in this Intergander case is that although all of the judges agreed with the conviction and with the sentence, we actually had some different and separate opinions, uh, some about what constitutes an attack and others about the vexed subject of indirect co-perpetration. And that's something we've tackled before. Elise van Sliedrecht, professor at Leeds Law School, was on the podcast before to talk about it. I know it's a favourite subject of yours, Stephanie. And she very helpfully tried to help guide me. Again, I gave her a call to see what this really arcane but very important subject means and why it's so important. So I've not read the judgments. Let, let's put that disclaimer out there because it's 400 plus pages. And then there is... There are two uh, opinions, a separate one and a, a dissenting one uh, of over 100 pages and a separate opinion, which is much shorter by Judge Morrison, which I did read. But um, so there's, they're very divided. That was my conclusion coming out of, um, out of this case and the appellate ruling and especially on the law. So there's a number of issues and the, the most contentious one is really the mode of liability or the form of perpetration as the purists would say of indirect co-perpetration through an organization. Oh, um, sorry, just pull that apart yeah, for us. What, we, we've already done, done one podcast on this with you together and I, I still don't understand exactly what, what the connection is. You know, it's, it's to do with who controls uh, others doing things? Is that the simplest way to put it? Or how do you explain it to a layperson? So explain this to a layperson would basically be how can you hold accountable a person at the top of an organisation for crimes committed by those at the lower echelons of the organisation with whom there is, he, the leader, has um, not a direct link. And um, you still want to hold him responsible for those crimes and uh, in terms of what we call fair labelling of expressing his culpability, you want to convict him, if there is sufficient evidence at least, as a perpetrator, rather than, and that's the other option, as someone who contributes indirectly through other people, which would be an accomplice or an accessory. And it's the terminology really where this all comes down to. It's that expressive value in the term of perpetrator not someone who physically commits crimes, but who by using others commits crimes. If you don't, I mean, in the law, there is that, that box perpetrates and the other boxes, as it were, um, accessories or accomplices. And, and that's really strictly for those who don't directly cause the crime, like someone at the top, strictly speaking, doesn't directly cause the crime, but the sense or the wording of accomplice or accessory has this, lesser liability element at least that's what some would say they would think that there's less culpability expressed when you're an accessory you're not at the heart of the criminal activity you're on the margins which is strictly speaking not true in the law but it's how it sounds to the other and because international criminal justice international criminal law in terms of the expressive value it has and the message it aims to send to victim communities to the world it's important to, to, to say things in terms of, 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 of how they should come across and, and to make sure that this person should take the full blame, even though he did not physically commit the crimes. Does it also have a knock-on effect on sentencing uh, then yes. as well? What you would expect, how much time somebody should spend in jail? Yes. So, um, and here I am, I'm afraid I have to just explain a little bit that in some criminal justice systems, in some cr uh, domestic criminal laws, 
there is that categorization of those who perpetrate the crimes and those who are accessories in terms of contributing are more on the margins, they are regarded as facilitators. They will have often a sentencing discount, if you like, a mitigated sentence that's in the law. In international criminal law, there's no such thing. So uh, the ICC does not have, you know, categorization linking to sentence. It's really at the end of the day, it's a separate, you know, the sentencing stage is separate from the conviction stage and it really is up to the judges how they weigh the roles and all the circumstances around that particular person and the crimes that uh, determines the sentence and so that's one of the arguments made by those who do not like this concept of indirect co-perpetration it doesn't at the end of the day really make a difference because when it comes to sentencing we just look at the whole picture and, and the role a person played. And if a person is in a senior position, that already weighs towards the sentence. Why do people get so worked up about this <laughs> then? Why do we have so many different dissenting opinions? Is it because, I mean, what, what occurs to me is that defence lawyers could potentially use this as a way to uh, argue in court? Absolutely. And that's one thing I would like to really um, share with you on the podcast is, is what this does is leave a big grey cloud over this concept. And in a way, it's a bit like joint criminal enterprise at the Yugoslav tribunal, which has always been sort of controversial, especially that broader form, that extended form with a very you know, broad concept of mens rea. And, and that's the same with this concept, although the majority, I mean, they convicting on the convict him on the basis of this concept but there are two judges who are very critical and they actually refer to judges who in the past were critical and other judgments on the same concept so uh, they're both leaving so they will not um, be able to to sort of push that legacy as it were it really is up to the the remaining judges but that leaves that cloud over a concept of liability which is just controversial. Where does this leave us? then is it that the, the majority of current judges, I mean, we've got a whole load of new judges, so we don't know, do we, how, what, what, they, what they think about this. But we've got this strain of people who've gradually left the ICC who say, look, this is a mess. And we've got people, other people who say, no, it's fine, just, just leave it. So where are we? So where are we? I, I think um, it's a concept that um, will still be controversial. Uh, in scholarly circles, it's been really critically claimed. There's been a lot of um, writing about this. Uh, not that you know that has to have an impact on rulings, but I think um, if you want broad support for a concept, you'd rather use another concept, and that's one of the. So Judge Morrison writes, as well as the former president, uh, they both write that um, there are other concepts in Article Twenty Five, Paragraph Three that they could have used. And uh, common purpose is one of them. And um, I think Judge Morrison points to instigation. So these are concepts that could do the job. And if you can stay away from indirect co-perpetration, you might well want to do that because as I said, there's a cloud over it. I have to add though, that one of the judges, um, Ibanez, the Peruvian judge, she has written a separate opinion, basically pushing the concept, saying it's it, it's accepted as a mode of liability, it can be read into the statute, et cetera, et cetera. So she may well be um, one of the judges and being on the appellate bench um, who will be um, still very much in favor of it to the future and, and, and 
prosecutors may rest peacefully and, and, and go for it in charging, but um, I don't know. I, I think if they can find something else, they will. Yeah, these debates really don't stop because whenever you have some something with the liability and to which level people can be found liable, these people all the way at the top, it's always going to be some kind of form of co-perpetration or doing something together with others and then how much are you liable for. So I think we'll hear a lot about this with every case. And I think that uh, Elise's point also about um, the way that when you have different judges in the appeals chamber and different judges in the trial chamber and we've got this whole influx as I said to her of these new judges I can imagine these debates just being debated all over again. Yeah at some point they're going to have to come to a conclusion but at this point I think the jurisprudence of the ICC specifically about that and because they don't have the joint criminal enterprise which is my favorite hobby horse from the uh, former Yugoslav tribunal they have to agree on how to kind of find somebody responsible for being part of a kind of criminal master plan and so that really has to iron out so we need to see a lot more cases before there can be a kind of proper jurisprudence established. Now just again before we get back to to Bagbo I was also watching um, a big ceremony in Mali this week. Yeah, the ICC's Trust Fund for Victims organized an event around reparations. And just to get us in the mood, we'll give you a taste of the music that welcomed the guests there. Yeah, it was Cora and electric guitar, you know, that magical Malian combination of instruments. Um, now, Stephanie, can you remind us what this was all about? Um, because it's about reparations. It's about what followed a trial of a particular Malian here at the ICC. Yeah, it followed the trial of Almadi. I can't remember all of his first names because there are a lot. Um, he was in Timbuktu, part of a militia, Islamist militia that took over Timbuktu. He's convicted of attacks on cultural heritage. And the Trust Fund for Victims was ordered to provide uh, symbolic reparations of one euro and um, also direct reparations to the descendants of the saints and to all the inhabitants of Timbuktu. Let's just uh, define it as the defendants of the saints. It's because this cultural heritage is the actual uh, graves where yes. saints are traditionally buried around Timbuktu. I think 15th or 14th century. Now I'm going to... Uh, Timbuktu is a UNESCO World Heritage Site where there are very famous uh, mausoleums of Islamic scholars that have themselves become uh, places of worship. And when the Islamists took over Timbuktu, they kind of raised these to the ground. And these are very old uh, clay structures that are very, very... Um, famous and the, the libraries of Timbuktu were known all over. It was a center for Islamic learning at the time. And that's why also UNESCO was heavily involved in this uh, ceremony because of the importance of this site. Yes, and the, the Trust Fund for Victims and the ICC also used the occasion to discuss the whole issue of reparations and get everybody to kind of talk about what the ICC can't, uh, can and can't do. Uh, probably especially what it can't do because people think it can do a lot of things. And in the end, it turns out they can never do as much as victims would really want. 
it was really one of those amazing occasions where you it was full of dignitaries and everybody was kind of lined up in a row and everybody started off every single speech with um, not only ladies and gentlemen, but references to whoever the other dignitaries were in the room and just went on and on. Really long speeches. I'm sure terribly important. So I'm going to try and listen back through to them again to, to see exactly what they said. What really struck me from watching it was a video that they'd created Uh, It was in French, but which picked out all of the best, the most important bits of the trial of Al-Mahdi. And just again, to give you a taste of it, here's the bit where Fatou Bensoudou, the prosecutor of the ICC, opened the trial speaking French. Il faut le dire, et il faut le dire clairement. Diriger intentionnellement une attaque contre des monuments historiques et bâtiments consacrés à la religion constitue un crime de guerre dûment réprimé par le statut de Rome. Monsieur Ahmed Al-Faki Al-Mahdi comparé aujourd'hui devant votre chambre. Il va rendre compte de son rôle dans l'attaque menée à Tombouctou en juin et juillet 2012 contre dix bâtiments historiques et religieux d'une valeur exceptionnelle. Uh, that's Fatou Bansouda explaining why this crime of destruction of cultural heritage is so important. And she used the occasion of uh, this event to mention one of her latest papers. You know, she's come out with a big strategy document about how to tackle this crime. It's going to be one of the legacies that she's leaving to the court as she's due to leave in the next couple of months. But also on the video, there was a really famous bit that I've watched many times before of Al Mahdi himself, where he he asked the people of Timbuktu, the people of Mali, all together for forgiveness and talked about reconciliation. Uh, it's in French again, but I think we should listen to the extract uh, that they gave, even though it's it's you know it's a, a few seconds long. So bear with us. Je voudrais exprimer mon profond regret et ma profonde tristesse en particulier aux descendants des saints dont j'ai détruit les mausolées. J'en appelle à eux ainsi qu'aux habitants de Tombouctou, musulmans, indulgents et cléments. J'ai espoir qu'ils seront animés par l'éthique islamique suprême, qui préconise le pardon et l'indulgence à l'égard de quiconque commet un péché puis se repentit. Je ne peux m'empêcher de caresser l'espoir que votre sanction ouvrira la porte de la réconciliation avec la population de Tombouctou et avec le peuple malien en général. So that event was just, um, I mean, it was really extraordinary to me to, to see it being done. And I know it's being done in Bamako rather than in Timbuktu itself. So it's it's a little bit far away from the crimes. But it had that real sense for me of this being a very strong, important recognition of what kind of role the ICC can play in a country which is trying to emerge from conflict. And I think it's really important that the that these things are done in that place because you know we're in the Hague. It's uh, even even for the Hague standards, this is outside of the center. It's just as far away. We don't bring it to the countries. The people don't really see what's happening. So at least in this way, uh, Malians have some idea of what the ICC did. And um, what I know from my experience with um, guilty pleas at the former Yugoslav tribunal. That's the thing that resonates the most in the region, because that international judges say something happened is kind of, you know, meh, it could be anything. 
But um, the fact that people that they know and people they have seen actually said, yes, I committed this crime, and yes, this is a crime, is always uh, very, very powerful. Well, let's uh, get back to another thing where international judges uh, say what they have to say. We're going to go back again to our main event from today, which is the Lohan Bagbo decision. He's the reason why we're here stuck inside, not enjoying the rare, beautiful weather outside. And I've even got a skirt on, first time for months. So, Stephanie, just remind us, what was this appeals court decision all about? Well, um, what happened in the initial case was that the trial of Laurent Gbagbo and, and Charles Blegoudet was basically that after uh, presidential elections in Ivory Coast, Gbagbo would not concede uh, the election win to his rival, Alassane Ouattara, who is now the current president of Ivory Coast. And what followed were a couple of months of electoral, post-electoral violence that killed an estimated about 3,000 uh, people. So he was accused of his, his supporters um, committing that violence. And that was about 10 years ago. Yeah, that was about 10 years ago. It seems that when I was in Dakar, I was waiting forever for them to hold elections. And then when I left, the minute I left, they held elections. And then I forgot all about it because I was all into the Balkans at that point. Um, but yeah, so he was accused of this post-electoral violence. What happened in the case is that the prosecution tried to uh, get the case together, but they had a lot of problems, a lot of insider witness that didn't really come through for them. And so halfway through the case, after the prosecution presented their case, the defense filed a so-called no case to answer motion, which meant that they argued that the prosecution hasn't sufficiently proven their case, so they didn't even have to mount a defense. And the judges actually asked them to, to do that. So the judges were pretty convinced that, that they hadn't heard enough evidence. And then the judges came up with a decision that said... That said, the case can stop now and Bagbo and Blegoudet are acquitted. Then immediately the prosecution appealed to make sure they weren't going anywhere and they wanted this overturned. But boy, did the prosecution get a lashing from the appeals chamber today. I mean, there were some uh, procedural bits that uh, they agreed with, but basically everything they said is it doesn't matter. The prosecution really didn't have any proper evidence to file the case that they filed. Well, maybe we'll do a little bit more of the detail, but just while we were we went outside to uh, to see the reaction, um, it was quite a small crowd because obviously people can't travel from far to The Hague at the moment, but they were definitely really excited when they heard this news. <laughs> So this was the last decision also from, and the last time I think that we'll hear from Judge Chile Ebo Asuje, who's the president of the court, president of the appeals chamber, and this was his last time of, of appearing. So how did he come across to you? He was definitely enjoying himself. Um, he enjoyed himself having all this time to hold forth from from his Counsel and they were super critical of the prosecution. I mean, if I was the prosecutor, I would have crawled under my desk halfway through the hearing because it was just one thing after another. Um, basically, it said they had not any kind of evidence uh, to the standard of proof that you would expect in a case, and all the all the things that the prosecution raised uh, to get this dismissed were basically just completely wiped off the table, even even by majority. 
but uh, yeah, that was interesting to me. I mean, it was uh, three to two, and as we mentioned already, the appeals chamber will change again because we have a different influx uh, of judges. But uh, male female split. I mean, how how did you see see it? Well, because I was running outside to hope that Gbagbo was going to come outside and say something to his supporters, which newsflash, he didn't. But I was milling outside to get that. I haven't actually read through the uh, through the, the dissenting opinions. But one of my colleagues who got the press release did send me a message and said, did Judge uh, Ebu Suji just conveniently not mention that there were two out of five judges that did want a retrial? And I was like, yeah, no, you fair. He, he didn't did mention that. He, I mean, he did mention by majority, right but I didn't hear the, the retrial. No. He did mention right at the end there was the this was what was in the dissents from the other two judges and that they both went for a retrial. Ah, but you see, I missed this because he started before that, he started talking about how he was putting things in SharePoint and having an emotional kind of farewell to the court. And I had already switched off because by then I was typing up my story to go out. And of course, after he said, you know, all these grounds are rejected, we confirmed the decision and then said that, the you know, Gbagbo and, and Blegude have no more uh, restrictions and they could go back to Ivory Coast if, 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 the, if the authorities let them. Uh, I just kind of switched off and started typing for my story. So um, that's why I missed the retrial uh, comment. Well, I was uh, sitting in the court uh, myself watching and I saw um, Bagbo put his thumbs up afterwards, you know, who was obviously very pleased. And Blake Goudet was, was busy writing quite quite a, a lot of the way through. But there was a real sense, I think, amongst the defence teams of um, that their approach had been justified that they had been right uh, all the way through. Um, I've already started to see some commentary on Twitter, very critical of the prosecution and uh, wondering, I mean, obviously Ben Suda is leaving, so we have a new prosecutor coming in, so things will potentially change. Um, but really that, that sense of, you know, this is not a great day for the office of the prosecutor. Absolutely not. I mean, Bagbo was their biggest fish, the first former head of state to appear before the ICC and to be so roundly criticized on the evidence that you brought that it's not even enough to mount a defense. I mean, that's really, that's kind of signifies a, a base problem with the way you set up a case, which is really something that is really uh, problematic if you can't mount a case when you have this kind of very, very big fish uh, more or less appear in your lap. So um, it's it says something about the way the prosecution uh, constructs cases. And this was a big criticism with uh, Fatou Bensouda's predecessor, uh, Luis Moreno Ocampo, where they said he's not good at putting cases together. But, you know, she's not done a great job of the cases that she got in her time. And some of them are Moreno Ocampo legacy. Yes, that's all true. But still, I mean... It's not, a, it's not a great track record in, in terms of conviction. And of course, I know a lot of the commentators would say, you know, in, for international justice to work, you know, convictions are not something you count by. People have fair trials. Acquittals are also part of it. Yes, but I mean, you don't hold these people over there to put them in jail for eight or in this case, seven and 10 years and then not have a conviction and have, have somebody be acquitted. I mean, that can't be the, the idea of international justice. Anyway, let's uh, celebrate uh, fairness um, yes. that, uh, that uh, apparently this, uh, the judges thought that this was the right decision. 
This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast hosted by me, Janet Anderson. And me, Stephanie van den Berg. You can find out all about the show and why we interview women experts on our website, asymmetricalhaircuts.com. Where you'll also find all the ways to subscribe and don't miss an episode. Do that. You can follow us on Twitter as well at asymmetricalh. This show was brought to you in partnership with justiceinfo.net. Music is by audionautics.com. Stay safe and enjoy your day.